listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. All right, thank you so much and welcome everyone to this session of the ACB Virtual Conference and Convention, as well as the Conference of the Audio Description Project. Today we're talking about, uh, this is listed as the Audio Description Legislative Update, but it's a bit more broad than that. We're looking at legislation, regulation, what are the current policies and uh, how those could potentially change or be updated going forward. So my name is Clark Rockfall. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. And thank you to everyone who has joined us here on the webinar, as well as those listening over ACB radio. And today we are joined by several guests. And as I pivot to my notes, make sure that I get the titles right. So from the Federal Communications Commission, we have Susie Rosen-Singleton. And Susie is the Chief of the Disability Rights Office in the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the FCC. We also have Will Shell, an attorney advisor within the Disability Rights Office of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. Also joining us is Carl Richardson, ACB member and member of the Bay State Council for the Blind, or Bay State Council of the Blind, excuse me. And Carl is the chair of the Audio Description Project Steering Committee within ACB, a member of the FCC's Disability Advisory Committee, and co-host of the soon-to-be award-winning Picture This podcast <laughs> all about audio description. And last but not least is Claire Stanley, Advocacy and Outreach Specialist uh, from here in the National Office for ACB. Claire is also a member of the FCC Disability Advisory Committee and the award-winning Best Supporting Actress for Disney <laughs> Plus's Pick of the Litter. So as we get through our panel here, Susie will start us off with some remarks from the Federal Communications Commission, and then we will move into a panel conversation with Susie, Will, Carl, and Claire. And then at the end of our session, we'll open it up for audience Q&A. So Susie, how are you doing today? Hi, everybody. Thank you, Clark. This is Susie speaking. Um, it really feels like just yesterday that we were with you at your national conference, uh, and it's already one year that has passed. Of course, so much has happened since then, to say the least. So uh, very happy that you decided to proceed with your conference in a virtual environment. It's really wonderful to be able to continue to stay connected and certainly important to do during this time in particular. Uh, before I dive into my remarks, I just wanted to share um, that I'm looking forward to your questions. We very much want to hear what you have to share with us as well. Um, I do have some uh, overarching issues that I wanted to cover before we jump in. Um, First, uh, as, or at least some of you or many of you may know, to this day, we still do get the question, what is the FCC? What does the FCC do? So we just want to cover that really quickly. Uh, the FCC 
regulates interstate and international communications by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. The FCC is also an independent U.S. government agency overseen by Congress, and uh, the commission is the federal agency responsible for implementing and enforcing America's communications law and regulation. So that's just a very broad, big picture of what our agency's responsibilities are. Now to narrow that down a little bit further to our office, the Disability Rights Office, we're an office of approximately 15 people at the commission who focus only on accessibility and we work very closely with other bureaus in the agency to ensure that everything uh, is as accessible as it can be before it is released. Um, it's a very tall order, particularly given that we're overseeing at the agency so many things, but there are three main areas. The first is modern communications, ensuring that there is access to telecommunication services and equipment, hearing aid compatibility, access to advanced communication services and equipment, access to internet browsers that are built into mobile phones. Um, TRS, which is Telecommunications Relay Service, uh, the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program, also known as ICANN Connect. The second large area of those three main areas is video programming. That includes accessible video programming and video programming uh, uh, apparatus, including access to televised emergency information, uh, closed captioning on television and audio description of programming, both on television and on the internet, at least for captioning, for uh, uh, internet-based programming. Uh, we also have rules about accessible user interfaces, text menus, program guides, and then the last bucket is emergency communications, making sure that emergency notifications and communications are accessible to individuals with disabilities. And those are our three large buckets for DRO, and we're going to dig into some of those more particularly, specifically audio description uh, and our work around uh, those types of issues. Uh, before I go in depth on that, I do want to uh, talk to you a little bit uh, about the context we find ourselves in facing this uh, pandemic. The FCC is rushed to action to ensure that we are going to address any existing problems that we felt um, were within our jurisdiction exacerbated by the, the pandemic. We have a website that is specifically focused on the work the FCC is doing around the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and uh, the URL for that is www.fcc.gov slash coronavirus, all one word, coronavirus. And that uh, provides access to a lot of resources there. I'll share with you quickly three highlights uh, that we have uh, been working on in this pandemic that touch on disability. The first is telehealth availability. We want to ensure that... Uh, hospitals and providers are given the means to, uh, you know, notify health services that people are able to stay safe, um, that providers are going to be able to stay safe, that patients are going to be able to stay safe, and the public stays safe. So um, we have distributed $200 million to date, uh, pursuant to the CARES Act from Congress, uh, the Coronavirus 
uh, Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, CARES, C-A-R-E-S Act. Um, that's where that $200 million originated. Uh, we'll also announce that there's another $100 million for a three-year pilot program for connected care and connected health. Um, and we want to ensure that all of those programs are accessible as well. So we have coordinated with other federal agencies like HHS, DOJ, and so forth to ensure that we have uh, accessible telehealth services. The second uh, major thing that we have been working on uh, is about emergency information so that uh, people have access to emergency information in the context of the pandemic. We released an access info uh, with a list of all of the different resources that are available about uh, televised emergency information. And we also receive a lot of complaints that we are trying to process expeditiously to try to remedy any of those issues that may have uh, come up across the nation at this time. And specifically for people who are blind or visually impaired, um, we already have existing rules that uh, cover the accessibility of emergency information on television. And there are three major areas under uh, that what's called 79.3 requirements. The first is that uh, if a newscast, either regular or an interrupted sort of breaking news newscast, um, has the main audio portion of that programming must be accessible by audio description. And we're, this is, again, the main audio portion. If there is a crawl, this is the second uh, item under that, if there's a crawl or a scrolling text alert during the course of regular programming, but it doesn't interrupt uh, that regular programming, there must be an audio tone on the main audio stream that would alert a watcher that there is information available on the secondary audio stream. Uh, and then that secondary audio stream must have that information uh, conveyed accurately, completely, at least two times in full, again, on the secondary audio channel. Um, and that, again, must be preceded by an audio tone uh, in order to prompt people to switch over to the secondary audio stream. That secondary auto stream information must supersede any and all other information that would otherwise be on that secondary audio stream, um, including audio description for that program or a foreign language translation or duplication of the main audio stream. That emergency information uh, on the SAS has to supersede any of those other possible audio streams that might be displayed there. Um, and then for 79.2, which is the, the rules that cover emergency information on television uh, for people who are blind, the multi-channel video programming distributors, which we call MVPDs, must uh, assure that any applications or plugins that they provide to consumers uh, to access linear programming on secondary screen devices. And by that, we mean things like tablets or smartphones or laptops, that those second screen devices, that any of those applications that travel over their network as part of the MVPD's service must be capable of passing through an oral representation of emergency information, including that audio tone on the secondary audio stream of that second screen device. So, um, and that's a relatively new requirement. We would love to hear from you as to whether you have any 
issues or concerns about that. And we'll be getting more into that um, when we talk about the kind of general audio description rules later. And Will is going to do a lot of that. Um, but uh, that's a second big area for our pandemic work. Um, the last area of our pandemic work that I want to highlight for you today uh, is that we have been working closely with Department of Homeland Security to ensure that captioning and TRS provider facilities are considered or deemed essential in order to facilitate their travel uh, and seamless op operation during this time. So we've been working closely with DHS um, specifically with uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure uh, Security Agency, CISA, to ensure that those providers of captioning and telecommunications relay service can continue to work. And we've issued several waivers for TRS providers to help ensure that the pool of interpreters who are working there remains robust and continues to be available to consumers. They can still utilize that service without interruption seamlessly and efficiently. Uh, now, and those waivers last until August 31st, so we will see where we are at that point. But uh, that's a lot of pandemic-related information. However, this month also marks a very important anniversary um, of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, 30-year anniversary, the ADA's birthday coming up, uh, 30th birthday, very big one. But this year does also mark the 10th anniversary or 10th birthday of the CVAA, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which is a great milestone. The FCC, of course, wants to celebrate both of those accomplishments, but I have to say that it is going to be a challenge given the pandemic, but um, I did want to take a moment now for us to just consider, and not only myself, but all of you, where were you in the year 1990 and how is your life different today than it was? Now, for myself as a deaf person, I have to tell you, it has made a world of difference over the course of these 30 years. Uh, I was in my second year of law school in 1990 and uh, already had access to interpreters and what have you because I went to a public school. Um, so that was already required by the Rehab Act, thankfully. However, I do have to say that uh, there was a lot of catching up to do in the private sector at that time where the ADA filled in that gap for many of us. Uh, so in 1992, when the ADA became actually effective, I was a licensed attorney by that time. Uh, and I just wanted to share with you that uh, at the time, the DOJ, which is Department of Justice, had not released any regulations about the ADA. So we had to test the ADA in the courts. Uh, and I was a litigator in the Ninth Circuit in California, working for the California Center for Law and the Deaf. And my co-counsel was a disability rights advocate, and some of you may know uh, Sid Walensky, who uh, mm -hmm. was just a renowned disability rights attorney in California. Um, and so Sid and I, uh, you know, we, we worked very closely together. I asked him to come out to co-counsel with me on this case. We sued uh, two different entities. Uh, well. It's actually um, for one of two, but the Center for California Law and the Deaf did two, but we did uh, this one. But um, first was Barbary, which was at the time a uh, a bar review 
course program. Uh, and they provided one month uh, of courses to, you know, get people trained and ready to take the bar exam in California. And, you know, people kind of shaking their boots at the California law exam. So there was a program to get people ready for that. Um, and you want to be able to have that option to take a review exam prior to taking the bar, but they refused to provide interpreters. Um, so I, because the ADA was only recently implemented, um, and effective communication can't be defined by providing me a transcript of the class. Um, so we went uh, to court and that case was settled successfully with the DOJ involved. So uh, the second case was a published court opinion that resulted from uh, litigation um, that was uh, against a local hospital, St. Helena Hospital, which uh, is in a really beautiful wine country in Napa, uh, Napa Valley. Uh, there was a patient there who was hearing and his wife was deaf and the patient was in a coma. So his deaf wife needed access via an interpreter but uh, was denied by the hospital to provide any accommodations under the auspices that the ADA applied to that patient who was hearing and didn't need any accommodation. Therefore, they wouldn't provide accommodation for his wife. However, uh, that case resulted in an opinion that effective communication doesn't only apply to the patient in that scenario, but also to friends and family. And that was entered into the ADA regulations eventually um, that were put together by the Department of Justice. So. 30 years ago was a very different world than it is today. And of course, you want to celebrate that. However, this month, we unfortunately are not planning to have an event. Uh, the National Council on Disability, NCD, had to cancel their planned event. Uh, many other agencies had to, had to cancel their event. We are hoping to release a blog uh, to honor the, the many, many milestones uh, that we have seen over the course of the last 30 years of history with the ADA and with our federal agency. And uh, we are also hoping to have an event in October to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the CVAA. Um, we also have a CVAA biennial report to Congress that is due October 8th. Uh, so we have already released our public notice requesting comment on that. We have received thank you, particularly to ACB, for the comments that you submitted. To the record there, it's really important for us to hear from you and get your feedback about any concerns you might have to flag outstanding issues for us and so forth. And we are currently developing our tentative findings and we'll be releasing a public notice in the next one to two weeks. So, uh, you know, that we'll be requesting comments on our tentative findings. Um, to give you a little bit of background, there are four required assessments that have to be included in our biennial report. Um, the first is the level of compliance with the CVAA's accessibility obligations under sections 255, 716, and 718 of the Communications Act. Uh, the second is the extent to which accessibility barriers exist with respect to new communications technologies. And the third is the impact of the CVAA's requirements on the development and deployment of new communications technologies. And the final fourth is uh, information about the number, nature, processing, and resolution of related complaints. So we're very excited to see your comments on our tentative findings there. Um, 
the final category before I wrap up um, and we get to the panel for this afternoon, I, I do want to share with you that um, we consider your engagement as essential to any work that we do. So we have a, a great many activities we undertake in our agency to ensure that we are with you, that we uh, don't do anything about you without you. And uh, first of all, we have our DAC, as it's called, the Disability Advisory Committee, DAC, um, which we are shortly going to be announcing the fourth term of that advisory committee, um, which will be launching in uh, January of 2021, or I guess December of 2020. I apologize. Uh, that, that will be launched. So be on the lookout for that announcement requesting nominations which should be coming out shortly. We have our complaints processing system at the, the FCC. And the website for that is www.fcc.gov slash accessibility complaints, all one word, all one word, accessibility complaints, no space. So uh, please, if you feel that uh, you have any kind of concerns, if you're unsure whether something is in compliance with our rules, please don't hesitate to file with us. Uh, third, we have our public comment proceedings, um, in which, as I mentioned a couple of times, we've asked for comments, like, for example, on the CVAA, um, comments about the state of audio description, um, you know, for our report to Congress. We really appreciated the time that everyone has taken to let us know, and we realize that it takes time. Uh, it, is a, it is a demand on your time. We really wish you could be everywhere, but we do value all the input you do provide to us. Uh, the next uh, method of outreach we have is our access info listserv. This is an email list in which we send out any recent uh, documents or rules or rulemaking proceedings uh, or even events that may be taking place that are pertinent for the disability community. So if you haven't signed up, please do contact us after uh, the session. We can add you to that list. Uh, it is not very frequent. It's a couple times a month that we send out emails there. We also host roundtables and forums. We hosted uh, one on audio description a few years ago. We're hoping to continue with hosting uh, forums and roundtables. It's an important venue for people to come to the table uh, literally and to provide their opinions. Um, social media, um, you know, we be on the lookout for that as well. But you'll see us on Instagram, on Twitter, um, Facebook. Uh, we try to be where the uh, where everyone is. Um, so we would love your feedback on that as well, how we can continue to improve our outreach efforts. We also have uh, consumer and small business guides. Um, there's an award that we have, the Chairman's Awards for Advancements in Accessibility. Um, that happens on an annual basis. It has not been announced, unfortunately, for this year due to the pandemic, but we are hopeful that we will be able to make such an announcement soon. Uh, we also do have one of the very first ASL consumer support lines. Um, so across the nation, so there's a lot of different engagement that's going on there and we'd welcome any feedback about what more we could do. And uh, before I wrap up, I have a quote I wanted to share with you. Um, it's a quote by Robert Frost and it goes, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Uh, and to me, my takeaway from that 
is that as comfortable as we might be with the current state of things, with the status of accessibility, I mean, as I'm comparing 30 years ago with today, there is always work that remains to be done. There's always barriers for us to break down. Uh, and I'm sure that you all could give me plenty of examples of those, um, you know, from smartwatch interfaces to webinar accessibility, particularly now that we're in this largely remote environment, to telehealth access and so forth. Um, so please do continue to stay connected. Um, thank you so much for your time. And then I will send it back to Clark. Clark, before you take it back, this is Deb, your Zoom facilitator, and I was away when you all started. I need to give the Zoom, the uh, the uh, codes, the CE, the accreditation codes for people who are taking this for credit. So if sure, I sure, go right ahead. Thank Deb. you so much. It's E A F six nine. So E Echo A Alpha F Frank six nine. And sorry for the interruption. Thank you for that important piece of information and I'll be certain to circle back with you at the end for the ending code, Deb. Uh, Susie, thank you so much for those remarks. Uh, thank you for touching on the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, as well as the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, um, the CVAA. Many of our members who are listening this morning heard the remarks of Senator, Senator Markey from Massachusetts. Uh, he shared how important that law has been for people to maintain access and receive access to technology um, here as it develops, as well as audio description. Um, so Susie, I have to ask, and Will, please feel free to jump in as well. Uh, without the CVAA from 10 years ago, do you think that the American Council of the Blind, an organization of people who are blind and visually impaired, uh, would be able to host a virtual conference and convention over a, an internet-based webinar platform using video for American Sign Language interpretation for, for panelists and guests um, and streaming it over internet browsers on an online radio service, ACB Radio. Would that have been possible without the CVAA? Uh, this is Susie. I mean, I, or I can I can certainly start uh, quickly just by saying that the CVAA does have language about advanced communication services. Uh, and we have an open rulemaking proceeding about interoperable video conferencing. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at this point, there, there is no clarity about that interoperable video calling uh, requirement. As you know, um, you know, people could use Skype or FaceTime or Facebook Messenger, and there's no requirement that those services are interoperable. It's something that we are currently working on with our uh, federal advisory committee, the NANCY, N-A-N-C, North American Numbering Council. Um, there's a working group that is the interoperable video calling working group whose goal is to ensure that any 10 digit number would be able to be video interoperable with any other 10 digit number. Um, they've just submitted a, a report which hasn't been released publicly yet, but should be released later this month. Um, so I, I think that the CVA has really helped move the needle a lot uh, over the course of the last decade. Uh, Will or others, did you want to add? Yeah, this is Will. 
Uh, I'll just add in that uh, on on what Susie's saying, and and just kind of echo the idea also that the you know rules like the CVAA they don't have necessarily the impact on every single um, space, but what they do do is kind of spur the baseline, and then that starts to become the norm. So I think one thing that um, one thing that that goes to your question, Clark, is would some of the services that provide audio description, would they be providing audio description voluntarily unless the baseline um, covered networks that the FCC regulates, um, if they weren't providing audio description, would programs like Netflix have so much audio description when they came out? And I think it's really hard to tell, but it is pretty uh, incredible that there is so much voluntary accessibility and I think it comes from seeing the accessibility um, and then you start to replicate that and when you want to make a better product um, then you try to incorporate that and nothing is better than using the off-the-shelf uh, products like like the system we're on now um, and so it, it, it is exciting to see accessibility not being relegated to specialized equipment or specialized services. Will and Susie, thank you. And uh, Will, because you touched on the FCC's rules for audio description, well, what do they cover? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, so I was, I was just saying um, that our rules don't cover all of the uh, audio description that is out there. So let me just kind of nail down the specifics about what our rules do cover. Um, and it can get a little bit um, nuanced. And so if you want to uh, read the actual rules themselves, they're found in 47 CFR, that's the Code of Federal Regulations, um, uh, 79.3, that's where they sit. And um, we have an extensive amount of information about audio description and our rules uh, in consumer accessible guides, uh, and also a bunch of information about how to find TV listings for audio descriptions, uh, all on our webpage at FCC.gov slash audio hyphen description. Um, but let me just summarize the rules really quickly. So right now, the FCC rules for audio description require that the most popular TV channels that they provide audio described uh, video on the secondary audio stream. So the only covered channels covered by the FCC's rules are the TV stations affiliates of ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC. Uh, now, we also have, um, uh, well, let me, uh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, only those broadcast stations that are in the top 60 TV markets are covered by our rules. Um, the, uh, we also have requirements for the top five non-broadcast networks. So those are traditionally what we might consider to be cable channels. Um, and those are Discovery Channel, History Channel, TBS, HGTV, and USA. Those are the only networks that we have rules that require that they provide audio description. 
Right now under our rules, those networks are required to provide 50 hours of audio description, either in prime time or children's programming per calendar quarter. And they are also required to provide 37 and a half hours of audio description for anything. Um, it doesn't have to be children's programming and it doesn't have to be primetime programming, it, but it has to be between the hours of 6 a.m. and midnight. And that's 37 and a half hours per calendar quarter. That totals to about seven hours per week. Um, the television networks can only count towards those hours. They can only count the first airing of the program uh, and also one repeat. They can count one repeat towards the requirement. And um, so that is the baseline set of rules. The list of the top uh, non-broadcast networks, that changes every three years. And the current list that I read out will be in effect until June 30th, 2021. So you have less than a year left before we update the top five non-broadcast networks. And thank you, Will. And you mentioned that uh, only broadcasters in those top 60 markets are required to pass through audio description. Currently, there's a a notice of proposed rulemaking pending at the FCC. Uh, reply comments closed yesterday, and that would expand from the top 60 markets to the top 100 markets. And I just want to do a quick thank you to all of the ACB members uh, who weighed in and either sent their comments directly to the FCC or sent them to ACB for us to include as an appendix, appendix to our comments. Uh, we heard from members living in the largest of the large markets, New York City and Los Angeles, but all the way down to Jackson, Mississippi, Topeka, Kansas, Cortland, New York, and others in between. So we certainly hope that those comments help inform the FCC's decision to expand the number of markets required to pass through audio description. Um, Carl and Claire, on the tell us a little bit about the FCC's Disability Advisory Committee. So Carl, I'll ask you to go first. Um, well, uh, in the last year or two, the Disability Advisory Committee in terms of audio description is, has worked on two areas. One was to see if we could suggest that the entities covered under the CBA create a sort of accessible database so that folks know what is audio described and what to watch. And that came out as a recommendation and was passed uh, pretty close to unanimously. And we're waiting to see the results of that. The other part of that recommendation was to take the terminology video description and turn it into audio description so that there's uniformity across all areas that work in audio description. For instance, the Department of Justice uses the terminology audio description. The federal government that deals with Section 508 uses the term terminology audio description. So there was, there was some confusion and we just wanted to make sure they were consistent terminology. And right now, the working, the DAC is looking into creating a set of guidelines and recommendations to have a minimum set of standards for 
for high quality and audio description that covers three areas. One would be um, the writing of audio description. The second would be the voice narration of the audio description. And the third would be the editing of the audio description. And that's currently being worked on right now. Yeah, this is Claire. Uh, Carl did a great job describing all the things we've been working on over the past year or so, kind of at a more 30,000 foot level about what the DAC is and um, how we get it participated. And I believe Susie at the beginning talked about what DAC is, but basically it's an advisory group that brings together people from all the different kind of uh, perspectives of of uh, the FCC and um, broadcasting uh, for people specifically with disabilities. So um, it's a really cool group to, to be a part of. Um, I, was, I was identified earlier as the rep. I'm actually only the alternate. I uh, shadow Mr. Tony Stevens. He's our rep, but I, per something happening to Tony, I will take his place. No plans, I promise. Um, but anyway, so being, Tony sitting at the table is one of many reps who um, are composed of people like broadcast representatives, other disability advocacy organizations, some actual um, government entities, um, people like from the US Access Board um, has both members of the deaf and blind community and deaf blind community. So it's a really great um, collaboration of people to talk about these issues and find ways to work together, put our heads together, get creative, and come up with solutions to these issues. Claire, as ACB's representative to the DAC, um, also the advocacy and outreach specialist for ACB, and the staff lead for ACB's information and referral uh, peer support steering committee, what sort of issues do you hear about from ACB members regarding audio description? For sure. Um, so one issue I feel like we, we hear a lot from, um, and I, I would be willing to put a buck on it that we might get some questions if we have time for Q&A, um, has to do with just the various forms of technology behind um, using audio description in your home. You know, every a region in the US has a different major cable provider. Um, they all do things a little differently with different set-top boxes and things like that. Um, and as somebody who can proudly admit that I am technology, technology impaired, um, I can completely can understand with many of our members who call us constantly and say, I know that legally under the CVAA, I have access to audio description, but how does it work with my cable provider? You know, how do I get the set top box? Okay, I have a set top box now. I did what they told me to do and it's still not working. I called my provider. They didn't even have somebody who knew how to do it and they're the provider. So um, a lot of technical glitches and trying to understand how to set the program up and keep it running tends to be a, an ongoing issue we hear people talk about. Will, is there a a regulation at the Federal Communications Commission that would uh, require either cable providers or broadcasters to inform or offer support to consumers with accessibility issues? Uh, yes, this is Will. So this is a uh, an ongoing um, issue that I, I hope will become easier as time goes on, you know, um, as we um, as we kind of leave the era of television where we have remote controls with a thousand buttons on them, and we move into the era where we have remote controls with five buttons 
or maybe no buttons at all. Uh, hopefully this will all become easier. But right now we have uh, a set of rules that talk about the accessibility of the user interface for um, cable set-top box. I'm going to call it cable, but it includes satellite and fiber TV offerings. Or, uh, and those set-top boxes have one set of rules and then everything else that plays video programming has a separate set of rules. Um, and the, the very short version of this is that the cable companies, they have to be able to give you an easy way to turn on and off the secondary audio, uh, but it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be what we all want, which is a button, uh, right? We, it, it, they, they do have to provide an accessible user interface that allows you to go into the menu and choose to turn on the secondary audio. That's essentially where our rules end for audio description, um, turning it on and off. Um, it is all, not always clear. Um, sometimes when you're in one uh, cable service, the way that you turn on the audio description is by choosing language selection and turning it to Spanish. Um, sometimes there's a dedicated menu for accessibility and audio description will be in there. Sometimes it won't be labeled as audio description. It will be labeled as um, the, um, what's all the, what's the 10 other words for audio description that are used? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, <laughs> they're not coming to me. We don't use any of those terms, Will. It's only audio description. <laughs> well, they're out there. This is, yeah. this is Carl. Can I add one thing to Will's comment? Please. So uh, I want to follow up with what uh, Claire said in terms of who to contact. One of the things that's different on the captioning side is that under the captioning quality rules that the FCC has, if there's an issue with captioning, all the TV stations and providers of the captions must provide a contact for you to get in touch with. That's not the case with audio description. So, if we ever rewrite the regulation for the CBAA, one would be just like they do in the deaf and hard of hearing community, the blindness community should have a person to contact so there's not so much confusion because often now when you call up a station, they're like, I don't know what audio description is or, or I'll put you through to someone but there's no one specifically designated. So that would be one thing that would be nice to see in future regulation. And the precedent's already there. So we're not asking for anything new since it's already existed. So that would be one thing. And Carl, you utilize both audio description and closed captioning, correct? Um, until recently, yes. My vision had finally progressed to the point where I can't, but until I'd say six months ago, I absolutely did utilize both captioning and audio description. And did you always find it easier to access programming with closed captioning than audio description? Yeah, because um, once you turn it, well, most TV sets, you just turn it on to what's called CC1, and it, it's there, and all the TV sets by law have had closed caption encoders since 1988, so it's a fairly simple, straightforward thing to turn on captions, and, and many remotes even have a button on them to turn on captions, so yes, it, it, it's fairly easy to turn on captions. 
And you got to remember the people, most people that are turning on the captions are sighted. So it's just straightforward. They just look for the menu, pull it down and turn it on. So last night during the conference, uh, Carl moderated a, an audio description industry panel um, with streaming services as well as cable providers. Um, and our friend Tom Lukowski from Comcast Cable uh, said a, a goal to work towards would be uh, for parity between audio description and closed captioning. Um, so just curious to hear the panelists' thoughts on uh, what, it, what would it take to get to the point where audio description is as ubiquitous as closed captioning? And can that be done with the current regulations or would there need to be uh, new legislation passed? Uh, so this is Carl, and then I'll let two of you, Will or Claire, but the one thing is the, the FCC has a 100% mandate for closed captioning. So, and, and we're, we're only at a one hour, you know, seven hours a week, so we're not even close. The other thing the deaf and hearted community had done when they passed the CBA is that if, it, if the captions have ever been on broadcast, even when the show goes to streaming, the captions must follow it. Um, if that were the case, the number of hours for audio description would expand exponentially. But right now, our shows don't have to follow, the audio description files do not have to follow the caption files. Um, so often when a show that was on broadcast goes to a streaming service, the audio description file doesn't go with it. So we do need to do, and there's a lot of other things, but those are just two things that I can think of off the top of my head. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Will or Susie or Claire, we would need to, to change the rules and regulations to get those same things. Uh, this is Will, yeah. I, well, most importantly, the rules that Congress passed are limited uh, to what we have uh, in front of us. I mean, barring, you know, not including the expansion that uh, into uh, the, the smaller markets, markets 60 through 100. But um, yeah, the, the amount of audio description, I think we have maximized what Congress has allowed us to. So the regulations themselves would never be able to um, bring parity with uh, the number of hours of uh, closed captioning. Um, I do, I do want to just say really quickly um, two things. One is um, there was uh, there was this there was a couple of comments about how there's the phone number um, for um, people with closed captions uh, to who who are looking for closed captions they can call this phone number, and that's true. There's no, there there's no such phone number for audio description problems. But I do want to point out that our rules do have some uh, in, uh, ability to require the uh, cable companies to, to give you the information that you're looking for. And if they don't, it's a violation of our rules. So for example, the, under our, under our uh, rules, the um, cable companies has to provide you with an accessible set-top box at no additional charge. Um, so uh, if you don't have an accessible set-top box, they're supposed to give you one uh, without charging you more. They also have to make it generally easy to get, and they have to have an accessible website that lists who you can speak to to find out more information. Um, 
And that person has to be able to explain how to get one of these devices and how to use the accessible functions on the devices. And I know that that is not the experience as, um, as Claire said, uh, that is not the experience that everyone has, but people should know that if they don't have that experience, um, then they can file a complaint with our office. Uh, that we would be more than happy to ask the cable company, why can't people find the accessible information that they're supposed to get? And why can't they get this in a reasonably uh, quick fashion? This is Claire, I'll just chime in. I know uh, Carl kind of touched upon it or touched upon it a little bit already, um, but I'm gonna use a, a funny little story and I'm gonna out our executive director, Eric Bridges. Um, he and I one day were talking in the kitchen, just shooting the breeze. We were talking about binge watching shows on the weekends. And we both like to watch Ion. I think it might be, I could be wrong, but I think it's just a local TV station and they do marathons of TV shows. And Eric admitted that he loves NCIS. So regularly on the major broadcasting channels, he could get NCIS um, with audio description, but when they use it on Ion instead, we don't get our audio description. And I must admit, I do the same binging with Law & Order SVU. So when I watch it on ION one day, I get no audio description. But if I watch it on USA the next day, I do. And so I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's a perfect example of, like you were talking about, Clark, why does the, you know, the audio description not follow? And the way I understand uh, the CVAA to be written it's not mandated. It's not, it doesn't work that way because ION is just some little channel that doesn't fall currently under the CVAA. So because of things like that, no, they're not technically doing anything wrong. But as somebody who loves audio description, I wonder why can't the file with the audio description just be bundled together? She says ignorantly because she doesn't know how the technology works, but why can't it just be bundled up all together and everywhere it goes? The audio description goes with it. Ion is actually a nationwide uh, company. I watch Ion here in Boston. Oh, thank you so much, Carl. Thank you. Yeah. So earlier, Susie mentioned that when a broadcast linear um, channel airs a program with audio description, the audio description has to follow to the second screen. And in a lot of cases, uh, as cited by the Audio Description Project's website where we track this data, um, most of the growth in audio described content is coming from streaming services. However, a lot of those streaming services are, aren't necessarily affiliated with a, with a broadcaster. Um, so Will or Susie, can you talk with us about the, the discrepancy? When, when programming moves to the online space, where is it required to have audio description and what do the rules, current rules not require for audio described content from streaming services? Right, this is Will. Uh, the, the, the basic set of FCC rules for audio description really only apply to over the air broadcasters and the cable satellite and fiber uh, services, the top five networks on those channels, uh, on those services. And um, our rules really don't extend into the streaming services. Um, but uh, just as you mentioned, that is where 
audio description seems to be exploding. And, you know, my hope is, is that uh, audio description will become so prevalent on streaming services that the uh, general uh, television networks will be so embarrassed by their lack of audio description, <laughs> they will uh, just start to provide it um, because the competition seems to be really heating up on, on the streaming services. Um, so anyway, the FCC doesn't have uh, much of a role to play with uh, the streaming services for audio description specifically, um, but the, um, the accessible user interfaces, uh, our rules around accessible user interfaces seems to have a pretty strong impact. So for example, if a streaming service um, app is included on a device, then uh, what, when you buy it, uh, for, uh, just give an example of a, a Roku device that is covered under some of our accessible uh, user interface rules. The Roku device uh, plays video programming. And if it has apps pre-installed when you buy it, all of those pre-installed apps have to have accessible user interfaces. And one of those accessible uh, interface components is the ability to turn on audio description um, quickly and easily. That's not the case if you download the app, right? Uh, our oh. rules, right? Our, right, our rules don't require um, just every app to be included uh, accessible, but the device has to be capable of having the accessible right. features. Right, like and, uh, and this is Susie. Um, I, uh, I didn't necessarily want to interrupt you, Will, if you wanted to finish, then I will go after. Go ahead. Oh, please go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and as Will and everyone has already uh, mentioned, uh, that does go beyond uh, the scope of what we require. I mean, our requirements basically are limited by the law, and that's the CVAA, which spells out um, certain issues that are under the scope of our agency, um, you know, and we can then promulgate rules and regulations uh, that can spell out what the the law says so that if the law does not say anything about um, audio description for the internet, then we're stuck you know, by the limitations of the law itself because it's not spelled out that the FCC does have the authority in the same way that it does say that for captioning. For captioning, it explicitly says that we do have that authority for programming that's showed on uh, television first. But as some of you may know, TV is certainly becoming more and more obsolete and so people are are concerned about those streaming services and how they are not included in even the captioning rules um, because there's a lot of content that is not shown on television first so um that's the the kind of old system uh <laughs> the old model um so in the cba is now 10 years old as we've said the ada is 30 the cba is 10 so you know, maybe we will be seeing some more guidance from Congress coming down the pike, but that's something that is beyond our ability to change at the FCC. But I do want to say that uh, because we have emergency mandates, accessible emergency information mandates, we are able to require that second screen devices have a secondary audio stream. So tablets, smartphones, laptops, 
uh, and those types of devices do have to have the capability to pass through uh, emergency information via the secondary audio stream um, over the internet, and as opposed to being over the air on television, this information over the internet. So if your MVPD, like Comcast or Verizon or what have you, your uh, multi-channel video program distributor provides you with an app on your smartphone, on your tablet, uh, it is feasible to view uh, audio description on your app through the secondary audio stream, but that is under a, a different mandate, right? The emergency access mandate requires that you're able to do that. Um, now you may consider talking with your providers directly about expanding their streaming availability for audio description because the capacity is required to be there pursuant to the emergency mandate. So they should already should have that capacity. Um, and given that there's already a mandate that any of these channels, to the extent that they have audio description files, um, you know, must be passed through to the secondary audio stream, even if they are not, um, within the the covered stations or any of these stations to the extent that they have that file um if well at least uh, unless unless the secondary audio stream is being used for another purpose but Susie, uh, if not then and they do have the file then they must pass it through um but again that only applies to to television as carl said we do have some limitations there but you know, we've released a notice of proposed rulemaking to propose that we expand uh, the coverage for those top 10 DNA, DMAs, designated market areas. We do that every year. We release that um, and uh, in, until we get to 100. So we're, you know, hopefully looking forward to seeing how that proceeding is going to go. And uh, we really appreciate the feedback about, um, you know, internet, uh, the need to have access to more audio description. Um, you know, we, we certainly hear you on that. Thank you so much, Susie and Will, um, and to all of our panelists, Carl and Claire as well. I want to make sure that we have some time left for Q&A. Uh, we've got just uh, between 15 and 20 minutes left in our panel. Um, but Susie, because you mentioned potentially future guidance from Congress, I guess I'd just like to close out and have, while we get set up for audience Q&A, have each of the panelists, um, starting with Susie, if you could wave a magic wand or looking into the future, uh, what sort of policies do you think would be most beneficial to uh, increasing the availability of audio description? Uh, a magic wand. Uh, the magic wand is really you. I mean, you can be a conduit for advocacy, um, working with your legislators, because it really all originates there. Um, that's where the change needs to start. And then the FCC can take action as an agency thereafter. So if I could wave my magic wand to send you all to the places you need to be to, to, to advocate. I know you all certainly are doing what you can and we're all in this together, but uh, you know, it really is a huge ask, especially um, with all the competing priorities on all of your time. So we, we understand that, but that's what I have to say, thanks. Thank you. And Will, you mentioned that the, the commission has done all about it. It can do in terms of the number of hours 
uh, required for audio description? Are there any policy uh, provisions that you think would help to increase the availability of audio description in the future? Uh, this is Will. I, I do think that um, bringing more attention to audio description is the way that um, it will continue to expand. I uh, saw just the other day um, that ACB was uh, trying to get audio description as being a technical um, as a technical award for the um, Academy Awards. I think that is a uh, a really great way to uh, kind of push audio description as being something that is um, should be included if you want your programming to be considered as a serious uh, programming, um, you know, for award purposes, uh, then that is one way to kind of bring it to the forefront. Um, and then also, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the nuances of audio description, there was someone was talking about when you turn on audio description, um, sometimes it doesn't stay with, with your, or with, with your, when you change the programming, um, sometimes it turns off when you change the channel. Sometimes there's something else on the channel, like um, Spanish. And I'll just say that there's a lot of hope. There's no rules in place right now, but there's a lot of hope that next generation TV broadcasting standard may be able to allow for multiple audio tracks, which would allow the hopefully, I don't want to promise that this is part of any of the rules, there will be audio description. That is, that is um, part of the rules already, but um, there is the hope that they would have the technological capabilities of having audio descriptions separated from um, foreign language and, and everything else, and that hopefully it will be smart enough that it will turn on if it's available and just play the general audio if it's not available. Um, and those kinds of interactions, you know, getting rid of the requirement that you change the language selection to Spanish in order to hear audio description, that stuff can go a long ways for people like Claire, who are not technically savvy, um, to be able to uh, find the audio description and turn it on without calling the cable company or without trying to look into the user manual. So I'll leave it at that, but. Um... Thanks, and Claire, your thoughts? Sorry, I was muted there for a second. Um, yeah, I, I kind of to build off of what Will was just saying, I just think it would be phenomenal, even looking outside of um, policy, to just promote audio description as an art unto itself. Um, I, to use a different example, I was talking once to some architect students and they say, oh, well, we're never taught about ADA compliance in architecture school. And I remember my jaw hitting the ground and thinking, well, that's silly. Well, I think the same thing could be seen with audio description in film school. Um, why aren't, you know, film students being taught that this is yet another aspect of what true um, effective and great film and TV production is, you know, getting them started from the very beginning so that when students are starting to think about producing TV shows or movies, they're thinking, oh, and we should, you know, think about the audio description that would go along with it. And this is what it would sound like. And this is what it would include. Um, so, you know, getting it baked in there from the very beginning, I think would be uh, a great idea. Thanks, Claire. And I'll turn to Carl to bring us home before audience Q&A. 
I'll be real quick because I, I know we're running tight on time. One, why not increase the number of hours and do incremental benchmark over the years like they did with cold caption and, and like they do in England and Canada. England requires 10% of all shows be audio description. So let's increase the mandate. And secondly, <clears throat> television and cable and broadcast, that's all legacy equipment at this point. Even the cable providers and the television people see that. They will all be moving to streaming. And if NBC and ABC and they all move to streaming, yeah, they don't have to do audio description. And so let's change the CVA to change with the technological advancement so that it's always there no matter what happens. So, uh uh, th this is Susie. I, I just wanted to chime in to clarify that we did release an item about next generation TV in which we emphasized that in that document that all of the access requirements under part 79, which includes closed captioning, audio description, emergency information access on television, etc. All of those uh, will apply to next generation TV contexts. So you know, maybe a little bit different from streaming. If they're moving to next generation TV, we we do have that language there to continue to protect the access rights for individuals with disabilities. Great, thank you so much. And Deb, do we have any questions from the audience? Oh yeah, you'll be here a couple of days for all these. <laughs> so we'll start with um, Cliffy and you can unmute yourself. While that's happening, let me just tell you that it's Alt-A on the PC, I'm sorry, Alt-Y on the PC, Option-Y on the Mac, and there's a raise hand <coughs> device, and Star-9 on the phone. So, um, okay, so Cliffy, do you want to unmute yourself? While that's going on, I'm going to ask Terry to, um, um, go ahead, Terry. Um, since since uh, some of these people are not responding, and they definitely are um, able to to, uh, to unmute themselves, I'm going to let I'm going to ask. Um, I'm oh, unmuted. I think now. Here's Terry. Yeah. There we are. Hello, everyone. Um, I just kind of wanted to reiterate something that Susie said, um, as far as advocacy is concerned. I, back in 2007, with Mark Reichert and Marlena Lieberg and several other people in ACB, I was working for Tenacity at the time, and it was the ACB convention in Louisville that we got people to come to the Tenacity booth, and we made hundreds of phone calls to, uh, to Capitol Hill pushing at that time, it was called the, the Video Description Act of 2010, which eventually morphed into the CVAA. But it was the advocacy that did so much. And it was the advocacy of ACB members. And I think that's something that we have always had a strong ability to do. And I think we need to continue that. And I hope to see all of the new, the next generation of ACB carrying that forward as far as the 
um, audio description is concerned. Um, that's number one. And now I'll put on my other hat, uh, my FCC hat. And I just wanted to add in that if you ever have any issues with the FCC um, interest, I should say interest in any of the products and the uh, publications of the FCC, there is uh, all of that, all of the information on the FCC website is available in alternate formats and it will eventually come through Gerard to me and we will get it out to you. So please don't hesitate. There's some great consumer, consumer guides on a lot of different subjects. And with that, I'm just gonna say thank you all. It's been a great panel and ACB keep going because the advocacy always does work. And this is an excellent example of where it has. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Someone listed as Shreeboy. Yeah, I had a question. Um, one of the things I noticed with the uh, these new devices, especially the cable boxes, um, and this may not be really geared towards an ADP question, but more of the fact that when these cable boxes come in now, you need a decided person to configure these Bluetooth remotes with the cable boxes. Is there something that can be done to change that to not require a sighted person to be here? Will or Susie, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, this is Will. That's a really good question. I'm not, I, I would have to look at our rules specifically and see how the accessible user interface uh, rules might apply to activating the device. I do know that the cable company has a responsibility to ensure that your device uh, is set up. Um, and uh, so but that's, that's not uncommon uh, of, a, of a complaint. And it's uh, certainly something you can um, reach out to us at, at uh, the FCC's Disability Rights Office, and I'd, I'd be happy to dig into that more and find out how far our rules might be able to go towards um, creating a accessible user interface startup process. Will, what is the email address for the Disability Rights Office? Susie, Susie might have more to add to that, um, and, and I'll let her give the email address, Susie. Yes, I do want to just say, I just wanted to say that we do have a usability requirement, not just accessibility, but also usability. So if you're unable to use your device, that does fall under our requirements. So please do reach out to us. Uh, you can contact dro at fcc.gov or just file a complaint because we have required fields for information uh, so we can investigate your complaint. If you go into our complaints form and type in fcc.gov slash accessibility complaints with an S, it is all one word, no space, accessibility complaints. Or you can contact us, you can call us as well. We have that information on our website, fcc.gov slash accessibility. That is the Disability Rights Office website. And we have all of our phone numbers and contact information there. Uh, and we are fully operational during the pandemic. Great question, thank you. Will, did you have anything else to add? 
Uh, no, this is Will. It's uh, it's perfect. This is Claire. Also, if you guys ever need to file a complaint like that and have any issues or like assistance, feel free to reach out to myself or Clark. That's what we're here for. And the best way to do that is by emailing advocacy at acb.org. Lori? Hi, this is Lori. Um, I have a question regarding the provision of information that's being scrolled across the screen. I was living in the number one market in New York, and now that I moved, I don't seem to, I don't seem to have access to that information. Um, and I only figured it out yesterday because my TV was making a beeping noise and I wasn't sure what it was, but it wound up there with something visually scrolling on the screen and the provider is Comcast, but I'm like way down there in some ridiculously low market. Uh, this is Will. So that's a great uh, question. So if you hear those three beeps, uh, our rules require that you be able to quickly change to the secondary audio channel in order to hear the message that is being scrolled uh, across the bottom. Um, and so if you're not able to do that, Comcast, uh, I, I just happen to know, has has the resources to tell you how to do that. You can also, you know, reach out to us as well, and we'll we'll facilitate the conversation with uh, Comcast. Um, that should work. Comcast is is capable of doing this, and and um, you should be able to switch from the primary to the secondary audio to hear the emergency information. Yeah, I I must say the I didn't know the three beep sequence. The other thing is they were not very loud. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I would be, um, I don't know exactly if we have um, uh, the tonal requirements. I think that they- um, uh, Yeah, it, more, it was more the volume than the tone. And actually what caught my attention was the fact that the um, sound of the television dropped. And I was like, oh, did I lose our, you know, the, the service or something? And then I was like, oh, so. So, okay. I will follow up. Thank you. And this Thank is you Susie so speaking here. This is Susie. I do want to emphasize again that the market size does not apply for any emergency announcements. That is only for general audio description. Uh, yes, yes. General described programming, but emergency information on any market needs to be immediately transferred. When you hear that beep, you should be able to get more information through the secondary audio stream. Okay. Thank you. We can take Thank one you. more, and that's Sarah. Great. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. This is somewhat of an advocacy question. Um, when you mentioned the top markets, uh, I have noticed when I'm watching one of the major broadcaster stations and one of the television shows is being audio described, I've noticed that sometimes some of the commercials are being audio described. So. Mm -hmm. I have a question, especially during Super Bowl, one of the most widely watched programs in the world. Who would we as uh, blind and visually impaired perhaps could advocate that the commercials that are accepted, do we go to the companies or should we go to the advertising agencies and say how crucial and, and important that would also be for us to enjoy some of those things? Since they Great question. Carl. 
usually the advertising agencies produce the commercials and, and provide all the post-production of the commercials. So I would guess that, and there's a handful of ad agencies that do the Super Bowl commercial. So I would guess that would be the best way to do it. And Will or Susie, there's no current rule requirements for the audio description of commercials? Uh, this is Will. That's right. It, our rules only apply to the um, programming on those. But uh, hey, be my guest. If you want to um, watch commercials, I guess they should they should be accessible. I haven't seen commercials in, in 10 years. So, Wow. Well, they do on the NBC station that uh, happens to have some of their shows occasionally just before the regular show will come on there will be a commercial and I almost fall out of my seat going, oh, they're talking about paper towels and a kid is walking in the door, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah. Procter and Audio describes a lot of their commercials. Okay. Our last question. So right. thank you so much. And before we go, code? we'll give the closing code. Oh boy. Yeah. I know somebody wants this. It's um, two zero C as in Charlie seven five. That's two zero C seven five. And I just want to say thank you again to all of our panelists, Susie and Will from the FCC, Carl and Claire with ACB, and everyone, if your question was not answered, and sorry, we ran out of time, please email Claire and me at advocacy at acb.org. listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.